Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, and we're uh, starting this morning with prayers for Nashville, and of course it was just a a tragedy yesterday that there was a shooting at a private uh, Christian school there uh, called the Covenant School in uh, the Green Hills neighborhood of Nashville, and uh, seven people were killed, including three children and three staff members. Um, one of the uh, the young girls, all of the children were only nine years old, and one of the uh, young girls who um, unfortunately died was uh, the daughter of, uh, apparently, of uh, the pastor of the church that was associated with this school. And um, it, it's just, it's obviously a horrific situation. And anytime that we face this type of um whether it's a national news type of tragedy, uh, whether it's it's something that um, is localized to um, our own lives and tragedy, we always have to ask the question, how do uh, we respond as Christians? And there's a lot on on Twitter and social media and um, and and leftists, of course, in all of our lives that uh, that always respond and say, well, thoughts and prayers are so cynical because what does that really do? Uh, we should have had gun control in place. We should have had, um, you know, all of these other leftist policies that would have prevented something like this. And uh, often, particularly um, mass shootings like this are immediately politicized. And of course, yesterday, uh, President Biden immediately called for more rigorous gun control. And that became uh, the ongoing narrative. And uh, what though, um, in the beginning, though, I think that we need to, at the outset of this, um, talk about why prayer actually matters, because we know that we live in a fallen world. We know that um, people are sinful, and especially people who are not saved are still uh, governed by uh, the sin of Adam. They're still in Adam, not in Christ. And um, we have to understand that um, evil still persists in this world. And and we are not going to uh, curb that. We are not going to be free from trials, tribulations, and tragedies until uh, ultimately we are in the new heaven and the new earth. And um, and also until we are present uh, with Christ and, and perfected. And the Bible tells us that. And as we are praying, um, it it is ultimately prayer is for the uh, salvation of um, as many people would come to Christ. And prayer, of course, is for the families who are uh, who are touched by tragedy and who are grieving um, in their lives and, and dealing with this type of grief. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of really good um, books on on this and, and explanations of uh, particularly First Thessalonians 4, which of course talks about how Christians uh, don't grieve as those who have no hope in the wake of uh, those who have died, because we know that uh, life is eternal. And for those of us who um, will die in Christ, then we will go 
and spend eternity with the Lord. And um, so I would encourage everyone today as you're um, watching the news, and, and it's really easy to just get kind of overwhelmed sometimes at all of the negativity and all of the tragedy that just seems to uh, be overwhelming this culture um, to pray for God's protection on our own lives, on the lives of our loved ones, and uh, to recognize why fulfilling the Great Commission is ultimately the best thing that we can do daily with our lives and take advantage of every opportunity to uh, bring our friends and families to a saving knowledge of the Lord because we don't know how much time we have. Um, this this family with this nine-year-old girl and the other families of, of the other two uh, young boys who were only nine uh, didn't know yesterday morning that, that dropping their kids off at school was the last time they would see them. And it's just absolutely horrific um, because this does seem so senseless um, and it is senseless it is it is evil that uh, someone would walk into a Christian school and and kill intentionally kill people and murder them um, and and I would encourage you to to use this as an opportunity to promote the gospel of Christ and talk about the problem of evil and that the Christian worldview and the Bible has the only real response to this type of senseless tragedy in our lives. And so as I was watching um, the news unfold yesterday, watching the responses, of course, from President Biden and then, you know, from the GOP and, and then from others and, and, of course, what they were commenting on uh, various news outlets and everything, um, people don't have really good responses to this kind of, of thing um, unless they are speaking truthfully and they're speaking in a view of uh, in light of the scripture and in light of eternity. And so it becomes this kind of senseless um, conversation where the only thing that the leftists have is, well, let's just go ahead and implement gun control and they continue to say that, of course, because they have a more nefarious motive, which is to uh, control everyone and take away individual rights. And so they often use, unfortunately, tragedy as a pretext to insert their public policy opinions and uh, and try to do this. But but then the, the question always becomes, well, you know, don't you as um, as Christians or as conservatives or as Republicans, don't you care more about the children than you do about your guns? And they fault us for this and they, they claim that we don't care um, about these types of mass shootings because Christians, uh, by and large, and conservatives are Second Amendment advocates. And um, and I, I tackled this question in the publication The Federalist um, back years ago, and this was in uh, the wake of another mass shooting, uh, and it was a fundamental question, why do conservatives care so much about our guns? Well, a lot of liberals who have asked me that have done so out of sincere confusion and justifiable anger even about senseless deaths at the hand of school shooters since, I mean, I, I remember Columbine very well. Um, my own pastor, uh, Gino Geraci, who um, 
I've, I've talked about on this program before he's been on the show. Um, he was the first responder pastor actually to the Columbine shooting and became an FBI chaplain uh, because of his work with uh, Columbine and responding to that as a pastor. Um, so these types of things hit very close to home for um, me and my family in Colorado. Um, there are a number of people that um, that I know in Colorado who actually went through that and were there uh, in Columbine. And so people who ask about these questions, they ask in good faith, uh, mostly, and a sincere desire to prevent mass shootings. Now, of course, that's not all Democrat leftists. They do have that nefarious motive. But a lot of these just typical liberal leftists will ask this, saying, why can't we just have more gun control? And I want to uh, answer the more fundamental question, though, of that they're asking is, why do conservatives care so much about our guns? And liberals th- seem to think it's because it just we care that it's our right or merely because the Second Amendment exists. But this isn't and shouldn't be the primary driver behind our thinking. If it were, then liberals might reasonably conclude that we don't care and rightly feel that we have um, that they hold rather the moral high ground. Their position is that safe schools should be valued over your and my guns. But this isn't just about your and my right to keep and bear arms or whatever they think or we may think uh, that phrase written into the Constitution in uh, 1971 as part of our Bill of Rights means in modern America. And of course, that's been debated. But fundamentally, this is about the government's responsibility to prove that a person has committed a crime or a, a, a rational legal basis before they, the government take away my rights. So the Second Amendment has to be read in the context of the entire law and the acknowledgement in the Declaration of Independence that our rights are pre-political, that our rights predate the Constitution and are not therefore granted by the government as mere privileges bestowed upon worthy individuals who satisfy some kind of government standard. Our government has specific limited powers carefully and specifically granted through the Constitution for the sole purpose of preserving and protecting all of the rights of the individual, every human being who's made in the image of God. So what can the government constitutionally presume about you or me if we want to own a firearm or exercise our constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms. Because a lot of people would say, well, why do you, who needs to own an AR-15 these days? Well, Well, why can the government question that? Why can the government question and say, oh, you don't need to use a firearm for self defense or self protection? Well, whose burden is it to show that I should or shouldn't be able to possess a firearm? That's actually the government's. And this is why the whole Constitution matters. And it matters in relation to the Declaration. Because your and my rights are pre-political. The government always bears the burden of proving that you or I are unfit as a gun owner or unfit as a parent or unfit uh, to have a driver's license or, you know, some of these things or have committed a criminal act or any other accusation bearing legal consequences when our rights are at stake. Any of our rights, including liberty. The government must presume 
that I am a fully fit citizen, meaning in legal terms that none of my rights can legally or properly be infringed upon unless and until the government shows proof by a legal standard that I have acted in some way contrary to the law and then and sanction uh, my actions and result in the government denying certain rights, such as taking away liberty through imprisonment. The government cannot presume, presume that I'm going to act in an illegal manner just because someone else walked into a school in Nashville yesterday and acted in an illegal, heinous, deplorable, evil manner. We care about how our government is allowed to treat us based on someone else's actions. So each and every one of us has a right to be presumed competent, fit, and innocent and have all of our rights. This is the heart of the matter for conservatives. It's not just about guns. It's about being able to exercise all of our rights without the government presuming through things like red flag laws that if someone else is concerned about you know, any of our behaviors, which of course in this day and age can just be that we're conservatives or that we vote Republican or that we're Christians, and then the government requires us to then go and prove to a legal standard that we are fit to exercise our rights. Well, no. The government, once the government shifts that burden and makes me prove my fitness and competency, then my government is already treating me like a presumptive criminal. So this isn't only problematic when it's applied to arms ownership. It's also problematic and unconstitutional when it's applied to parental fitness, exercising religious freedom, speech, school choice options, economic choices, and any other legitimate action and choice that you and I as American citizens or people living in this country are free and have the liberty to choose to do. None of these rights or any others of the individual are severable from their status as unalienable or able to be transformed by the government into mere privileges. This is what conservatives mean by protecting liberty. We're preserving freedom from the government presuming that we do not have legitimate free choice without the government presuming without cause we're all criminals. This is what liberty means. And so even in the context of all of these tragedy and the evil in the world, we have to make sure to understand that the root of conservatism is premised in the biblical worldview. We have freedom and liberty and all human beings are made in the image of God and have all of our rights that are given by God and the government cannot take them away based on anyone else's actions. Only our own, only our own. We'll be right back here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Let's be real. Retirement is expensive and inflation is making it even harder with the cost of everything going up from pet food to a dozen eggs. Wouldn't it be great if the cost of your health care could go down? Well, MediShare 65 plus is $99 a month for ages 65 to 74. And for many with Medicare Parts A and B looking at other options, that's 50% or more saved per month 
No gimmicks. It's $99 a month, and you can use any Medicare-approved doctor or facility, and you get 24-7 access to telehealth from the convenience of your home. Better yet, MediShare is a Christian nonprofit organization. It's a community that'll pray for you and encourage you. And since we've cut out the middleman, you get to keep the savings. Call now. You can learn more about MediShare 65+. Here's the number. 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE. 833-45-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray, a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Ann Phillips, Administrator of the United States Maritime Administration. She advises the Secretary of Transportation on commercial maritime matters and oversees the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Psalm 104.25 reminds us that the sea is the Lord's creation. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Ann Phillips as she manages maritime commerce for our country. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. A high school teacher boasted on social media about creating an explicitly queer space in his taxpayer-funded classroom. The teacher kept his name and location private. He said most days he comes to school wearing stilettos, boasting about standing six foot six in heels. The teacher also bragged about coming to school in drag and makeup. He said school administrators had no problem with his behavior, and they were just glad he was making a safe space for kids. Now, this guy is a sex and gender revolutionary, using his classroom to indoctrinate and confuse kids. Whatever happened to teaching young people to be good and productive members of society? Whatever happened to reading and writing and math and science? And whatever happened to teachers who used to wear sensible shoes in the workplace? Homeschool your children, America. My new book makes a terrific stocking stuffer. Our Daily Biscuit Devotions with a Drawl, available right now at ToddStarns.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And, of course, we will continue to pray for the families and everyone affected by uh, the shooting yesterday, the school shooting in uh, Nashville. And, you know, friends of mine, um, some of uh, their grandkids were actually about a mile away from uh, the the uh, school that was uh was the location of this horrific accident and I'm very thankful that uh, their grandkids are safe and we just need to continue to pray for this country and pray for um, the the depravity of everything that is going on in the transgender movement um, because of course it came out and as the story unfolded that uh, this shooter had previously attended this Christian school 
and uh, was actually a biological female and had transitioned, and I put that in air quotes, um, to a man. So was um, was reportedly uh, taking a lot of testosterone um, supplements and hormones. And, you know, this is, this is just a ridiculous experiment that our society is undergoing with these types of um, transgender um, types of hormone therapy with um, all of these so-called gender affirming care that's mutilation surgeries. And um, this is a real mental health crisis. So uh, we'll continue to discuss this um, more this week. And um, my, my good friend and a friend to the show, Vivek Ramaswamy, who of course is a presidential candidate, uh, had a really good uh, response to that on his Twitter page. You can go and listen to that. Um, we don't have time to play the clip today, but he'll join us for more on that topic tomorrow. Um, right now, I want to uh, actually turn our attention over to Israel. And uh, my good friend Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News, um, had a great piece this morning and posted it on his Twitter page only about 30 minutes ago with this headline, Thank God Prime Minister Netanyahu hit pause on judicial reform. Now he needs to build national consensus for a final bill, and here's why. This comes in the wake of a paralyzing uh, riots and, and some uh, other unrest that has been going on in Israel. And so uh, Joel joins us now with more. And uh, good morning, my friend. Uh, we'll hear at least good morning in, in the United States. But I think you're over in Israel right now. And uh, give us some more color and context on what's going on there. Well, good morning to you, Jenna. Yes, it's afternoon here in Jerusalem, where I live, a beautiful, sunny day blue skies and uh it feels like the, the the storm clouds have parted a little bit because it's a major national crisis uh i have literally never seen anything like the social and political division that has been rocking my country of israel here i'm a dual u.s israeli citizen um you and i know each other from my life in the states but wow uh, we normally think of praying for the peace of jerusalem being about praying for God to protect us from our external enemies, you know, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis, anything that starts with an H. Uh, um, it just usually they're trying to kill us and wipe us out. But right now it's internal division over a very important issue that goes near and dear to your heart, judicial reform and the hijacking of uh, the legislative agenda and the political process by real left-wingers in the Supreme Court that seems unresolvable. And so uh, Netanyahu, our prime minister, is trying to push through a series of very important reforms, most of whom, most of which I support, uh, one particular element I don't, but the whole country is up in arms and scared that a dangerous version of this bill will pass, and it has been a huge crisis. Wow. And I'm speaking with uh, my good friend, Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News. And, you know, um, to to talk about judicial reform, then, um, you know, for those who, who aren't necessarily aware of what type of government um, Israel currently has, I mean, of course, you know, with the prime minister, this is uh, based on a system of government based on a parliamentary um, democracy. But what so what type of judicial reform is actually being contemplated? And where are the various factions that agree or disagree with uh, various agendas? Right. Happy to talk about it, Jenna. Let me just give one quick context of the crisis. So, um, so even before everybody in your audience understands which side is on, who's on what side and why, 
The first thing you have to know is this has been building so much that 600,000 Israelis turned out into the streets over the weekend. Protests have been building for the last three months, but 600,000 people turned out to protest this current bill. That's six and a half percent of our entire population. I can't do the math quickly on what that would be if six and a half percent of America's 320 million people turned out, but you could imagine it would be huge. So, um, and, and so our defense minister, um, who's, who's a close ally of our prime minister, Netanyahu, uh, defense minister Gallant, he said over the weekend, listen, listen, we, we, there, are, there are combat soldiers in our elite units, fighter pilots, who are saying we're not coming to work if this bill passed because they fear it will end Israeli democracy. And again, in a moment, I'll explain why. So Gallant said, facing all that we do from Iran and our other enemies, Mr. Prime Minister, please just put a pause on the legislation uh, right now so we can go through the Passover and Easter holidays. Then we'll come back, we'll have a conversation, and we'll try to build a compromise bill. That seemed very reasonable to most Israelis, but Netanyahu fired him on the spot. And that added fuel to the fire. And by yesterday, Jenna, Monday, uh, uh, all the all the ports closed. The airport shut down. Workers didn't come to work. McDonald's closed. The schools closed. The universities closed. The banks closed. Every, I mean, it was a a the worst crisis we've ever seen domestically here. Netanyahu is a smart politician, and he he it didn't take much to read the tea leaves. So he he announced to the public that he would put a pause on the legislation, and he's gathering opposition leaders. Uh, uh, in the coming days, Lord willing, it appears to be, uh, to discuss it. So let me, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but then I can give you the very short version of what the bill actually says. Yeah, go ahead. And, and I think for a lot of people listening, you know, we're so, unfortunately in America, kind of myopically focused on what's going on in our uh, government and in our politics and everything. And so I'm not sure a lot of people are even were even aware that this is going on in Israel. And we will certainly be praying uh, for you specifically um, as our friend, but also um, for the peace of Israel. I mean, it, it's just this this sounds absolutely horrific. And so um, so, yeah, moving forward then into these different factions, um, how is this looking like it may be resolved? Right, right, and I and I just want to encourage your audience to uh, uh, to follow us at allisrael.com. That's the news site we started two and a half years ago, All Israel News, where we're doing real news and analysis, fair, balanced, accurate, um, but uh, led by an evangelical Christian team, a conservative team. Um, we are fair, but we're uh, but there's very little place that you can get real news that you can trust from the Middle East, and particularly from Israel. So. Yes, and I, I read this every day, and this is actually in part how uh, this story was brought to my attention, was because of you. So I appreciate that and would also so encourage uh, everyone to go to allisrael.com. And last week, as you know, we broke the story at All Israel News that two ultra-Orthodox members of our Knesset were trying to push through a bill to ban the sharing of the gospel here in Israel. We were the ones that broke the story. No other Israeli media or Christian media had picked it up. We, we did, and then it became viral, and the prime minister last Wednesday put out a statement saying he would never let that pass. He will never let the Christian community be harmed. So it shows the power of, of good journalism. So where are we? So the key is, look, our Supreme Court, um, the, our prime minister doesn't even get to appoint the people on the Supreme Court. 
like in the United States, obviously President Trump did a just a, a genius thing. I, I couldn't even believe it. I know you could, but I hadn't always been a supporter of his, but I became one as he became so pro-life and so and appointing all those pro-life justices. But here, the prime minister doesn't get to do that. It's a it's it's a complicated formula, a panel of basically uh, fellow Supreme Court members and, and jurists and people in the academia. They get to appoint the Supreme Court justices. Now, the Supreme Court has always protected human rights, civil rights, even the rights of Christians and Messianic Jews, which is not popular here in the Jewish state. Um, but the Supreme Court has done a good job on that. But in other areas, the Supreme Court keeps striking down conservative legislation that, uh, that, that, that conservatives, which most of Israel, is center-right. The left wing barely exists here. It's one of the few democracies in the world where the left wing has imploded because people here have rejected socialism. They've rejected giving away land to terrorists to supposedly get peace, right? So the whole country has been moving rightward, and yet the Supreme Court keeps shooting down legislation that the whole country wants. So Netanyahu said, enough is enough. We're going to pass a bill that gets this thing right, that's going to change how the Supreme Court justices are nominated for the, you know, and, and, and appointed. That's the first thing. And I totally agree with that. Then we're going to, you know, there's going to be a series of other important reforms, too. Uh, like the Supreme Court here gets to sh- has decided, there's no law, but has decided it gets to strike down a decision of the government or a, or a law just because it sees it as um, unreasonable. Now, it just decided <laughs> That's a this about very malleable standard. <laughs> so. I'll say. So finally, people are like, you got to be kidding me. No. So there's part of the reform package says you can't. No, it has to be. You have to respond to a specific law, specific in our basic. Um, we don't have a constitution, but we have a series of what's called basic or foundational laws from the beginning of the Jewish state, the modern Jewish state in 1948 which is all about our basic elements of, of, of human rights, free, you know, free speech, uh, you know, freedom of religion, all, all the, you know, all those basic, you know, principles that you would expect. So unless there's a specific law that you're referring to, you can't just decide it's unreasonable. But here's the key. There is also uh, the most controversial element of this legislation is the override clause. Now, this is understandable. I support an override clause, meaning if the Supreme Court keeps doing something that's just unfair, un, you know, not reasonable, has no basis in the law, then you have to be able to override it, right? I think we would all say that. But the Netanyahu plan requires only a simple majority to overturn a Supreme Court decision, mm-hmm. meaning out of out of our 120 Knesset or parliament members, you only need 61 to overturn a Supreme Court decision. That's, I'm sorry, I love the prime minister for many reasons, and and 22 years ago I worked for him for a few months. But listen, 61 out of 120, a simple majority, that's crazy. It's terrible. Why? Because you could you could get it. A government in a parliament system already has a majority, so the the majority could just decide whatever it wants, and it could override a human right, a civil right, 
a political right for Arabs, for Christians, for other Jews, for Jews who don't believe like you believe, that would be disastrous. And this is what's got people scared. It's got Air Force pilots and combat soldiers and workers and, you know, business people, high-tech people, investors going, wait a minute, you are basically emasculating the Supreme Court. You should reform it, (laughs) but you can't emasculate it and give it no power. Otherwise, you know, we don't have three branches of government in Israel, right? right? We have the Supreme Court, and then we have the legislature. And in a parliamentary system, the legislature is the government, right? The majority of the legislature is the government. So you don't have checks and balances except the Supreme Court. So so what I believe and most Israelis believe is, look, the American system, right, it's hard to overturn a Supreme Court decision, as you know very well. But there is a way. But it's hard. There's two ways. Either pass a constitutional amendment, which is hard, but requires two-thirds majorities of the House, Senate, and states, actually, I think three-quarters of the state, um, or change the makeup of the court over time with different appointments. Well, if you can't change the makeup of the court, then you're stuck. So all that to say, most people here think that, well, 90 out of 120 seats to overturn, that would be a supermajority, three-quarters. Maybe 80 is the right number, right? That would be two-thirds. But 61 is dangerous, and, uh, and it may look good if your team is in charge right now, but what happens when your team is not in charge? And that's Always the, the political question. Why people are so scared. Yeah. And, and that really makes sense. And, and I hope as, as people are listening to this and the contrast um, between our system and our separation of powers and why our Supreme Court is called a court of last resort and it is final, it can't just be overridden by the legislative branch to say, well, you overturned our law, but we don't like that. And so we're going to just pass it anyways or ignore your precedent. Um, you know, there are a lot of good things about ensuring that the court's decisions and opinions are final unless we go through one of those mechanisms. And it's been a conversation here in the United States about judicial reform in the same respect. Did the founders not give us a mechanism to override clearly erroneous precedent, like, for example, Roe versus Wade, until we did get that composition right. on the Supreme Court changed? And that's how ultimately uh, Roe was overturned. But um, this is but really cost, fascinating. Right, At, that was oh, yeah. million babies later, right? I mean, that's, exactly. that's terrible. It was far too late. So, well, we will be following uh, this story. And Joel Rosenberg, really appreciate your analysis. And I hope that you have a wonderful Easter Sunday and um, Palm Sunday that is coming up and Passover uh, there in Jerusalem. And we will be praying um, for the safety of everyone there and for the resolution here. But always appreciate your uh, commentary and your insight. So go to allisrael.com for more on this story and everything else going on um, with our correspondent from Israel, uh, Jill Rosenberg. We will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I 
to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. This is a unique moment in the history of our country where we have an opportunity to restore the foundations of this nation. Tony Perkins of Washington Watch. To a nation that once again honors God. It will not happen unless God's people are informed and engaged. Join Tony Perkins for Washington Watch. Weekday afternoons at 4 Central and Saturday evening at 6 Central on American Family Radio. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Many who oppose Christianity target their hostility on our foundation, the Bible. They say it's unreliable because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are contradictory accounts of the creation story. In actuality, the two chapters are complementary and not contradictory. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he quoted from both chapters 1 and 2 in saying that he made them both to be male and female in the beginning. And for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. Genesis 1 is an overview of the creation story. Genesis 2 is an up-close examination of day 6. If Jesus relies on them both, so can we. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. I'm Corrine, this is my story. I was going through some financial troubles paying off my credit cards. I was paying high interest rates and it just wasn't getting any better. And I knew I had to do something. So my mom told me about Trinity and so I decided to call. Trinity was able to do something that I couldn't. I'm paying off my debt, I'm saving thousands and things are really looking up. I promise you guys, you will not regret it when you call Trinity because it was such a relief and less stress in my life and it was the best thing I could have done for myself because once I called Trinity, they took care of me and I felt such a relief, a weight off my shoulders and they are a Christian-based company. I love it. <laughs> if you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I'm Corey and I'm debt-free for keeps. 1-800-788-1813. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And now with this new majority in Congress, we're starting to see some of the fruits of the efforts of Republicans in committee hearings to uh, get to the truth of some of these very important matters to America, including the weaponization of government, uh, the truth about COVID uh, origins, and also uh, the truth about the FBI's collusion with the Biden administration and teachers unions to target concerned parents. And so leading this effort is uh, my good friend, Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana. He's the vice chairman of House Republicans um, and attorney and uh, someone who carries the light of Christ so wonderfully in Congress. And uh, Mike Johnson joins me now. So uh, first, Representative Johnson, before we get to uh, this issue in your uh, subcommittee on the Constitution and Civil Liberties, I wanted to first get your thoughts and a reaction to the news coming out of Nashville uh, yesterday with this shooting and all of the um, the issues involved with that and how uh, we as Christians need to uh, view these types of tragedies in our world. 
it is a profound it's a profound tragedy and you know you'll hear a lot of talk and you have and we will in the the days ahead about the mental health crisis in this country but at the root of it you and i both know and we talk about often the fact that this is a, a a spiritual crisis you know and and that's at uh, I, I think the center of so much of this is that for a couple of generations now in this country, we have uh, told and, and taught our children, uh, this, these generations, that there is no absolute truth and, um, you know, that the, the most basic and foundational uh, pillars of our society don't matter anymore. And, and so it leads to chaos. You know, what somebody said one time, what we tolerate in moderation our children excuse in excess, and that is what we're seeing right now. These are the inevitable results of a culture gone awry, and it doesn't matter how you try to legislate to control uh, firearms. It doesn't matter um, all these other you know, legislative solutions and everything else. At the end of the day, this is a spiritual issue, and we've got to recognize it and treat it as such. Absolutely. It is a spiritual issue, and we have to fulfill our duty as Christians to continue to promote the gospel of Christ and uh, to to pray for all of these people who are going through uh, issues in, in mental health and in um, gender confusion and are buying the false ideology of the world instead of the truth. And and I so appreciate your perspectives on this and um, always advancing the truth of the gospel of Christ. And Representative Mike Johnson, you're doing that as well um, during a subcommittee on the Constitution and civil liberties uh, with respect to the FBI and the Biden administration uh, targeting concerned parents. So um, you've tweeted against this and and what have you uh, discovered in these uh, subcommittee hearings? Well, it's a remarkable thing that we're having to defend, to talk about foundations of the country and fundamental freedoms, the right to parent. And, and we, we truly have had, in the last couple of years now, a weaponization of law enforcement powers against American parents, merely for trying to exercise their First Amendment freedoms to speak out. And it is, there, there's, there are few things that are more dangerous than this. But, you know, we know that, that because the family is, is obviously the most important and sacred institution in any society, our Supreme Court in this country has held for more than a century the obvious, that the Constitution protects a parent's fundamental right to make decisions about the care and custody and control of their, of their children. And, and so our First Amendment protects a parent's right. Part of that is to speak and advocate for their kids. But when, when parents began to show up at school board meetings a, a couple of years ago to protest mass mandates and school closures and, and really crazy uh, curriculum ideas, some of this gender identity stuff and, and uh, critical race theory and the rest, they were, they were treated as domestic terrorists, quite literally. Um, the attorney general himself, Merrick Garland, issued a memo that's now infamous uh, in collusion with the National School Boards Association to insert law enforcement into local school board meetings to label the parents who were showing up to advocate for their kids as domestic terrorists. They, they actually created a threat tag in our, in our counterterrorism resources at the FBI to do this. They began to investigate and, and begin files on these parents. This is unconscionable. We're just presenting the evidence now for the people in these committee hearings. And ultimately, we've got to come up with some reforms to ensure that this kind of madness is never allowed to happen again. 
And I'm talking with Representative Mike Johnson about this uh, subcommittee hearing. And it is just incredible that this is going on in the United States of America. And often uh, we as conservatives will say that we don't co-parent as parents with the government. But this goes beyond just uh, the government thinking in this context that it can decide the best interests of the children and override parental rights. I mean, this goes to to targeting parents and treating them as, as if they are lawbreakers for simply exercising their uh, duty to protect their kids and even just be aware of what's going on in in their children's education. And and so what possibly is the rationale for this to for for Merrick Garland to have issued this type of memo and and target parents in this way? I mean, was it just to simply chill the parent speech and to try to get them to say, okay, we'll back off and you can teach whatever queer theory and sex education and whatever you want, or is it something even more nefarious? Well, that's an important question, isn't it? And we've begun to uh, dig into the motivations, the true motivations of all this, uh, with our subpoena power. You know, it took us a couple of years to get to this point because we had to regain the House majority so that we'd have subpoena power again. Uh, but we are doing this in our Judiciary Committee and, and the Select Committee I serve on for the weaponization of the federal government. Uh, we've issued a barrage of subpoenas, and now the documents are slowly trickling in. And here's what we found out, Jenna. This is this is, I think that it's an inescapable conclusion that when the attorney general issued this now infamous memo uh, back in October 4th of 2021, the attorney general issues a memo. He deploys the entire apparatus of the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's offices, the FBI field offices, et cetera, to go after parents. Um, it happened to coincide, if you look at the calendar, uh, with uh, a pivotal gubernatorial election in Virginia. You remember uh, when um, Glenn Youngkin was uh, going against Terry McAuliffe and education policies were hotly debated during that election and, and local school board actions were under intense scrutiny. And, and so the Justice Department, what they did here, it looks like a reaction to those political circumstances rather than obviously any legitimate law enforcement response. There was no serious nationwide threat. There were there were not not violence being perpetrated against school boards as they tried to imply. The evidence shows that this was a political exercise. And the most dangerous thing that we can think of, Jenna, is that you would use the Department of Justice for political purposes. It undermines the very system of justice that we have, and it's one of the big reasons why people are losing their faith in our institutions themselves. It's a, it's a really, really scary time. We've got to get on top of this and reverse this trend. Absolutely. And this sounds like yet another instance of weaponizing government and specifically the Justice Department to interfere in elections. And it seems like the more evidence that is being presented, the more we're seeing uh, Biden administration actors or uh, whether you want to call it deep state officials or, you know, whoever these people are who are part of uh, the government, that whether it is in the context of a school board meeting, it's in the context of the Twitter files and big government, it's in the context of an FBI pre-dawn raid against a pastor for you know, standing outside of, of a um, crisis pregnancy center. You know, all of these things are being tailored to one side and and ultimately to interfere in elections. And so so the, the, the next obvious question then, um, Representative Mike Johnson, is what can the legislative branch do 
to rein in and an, a completely weaponized justice system? That, that's a great question. You know, we don't have the authority to indict or arrest or try or convict uh, people who, have, who are violating these core principles and, 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 you know, steamrolling the Constitution. We're the legislative branch. So here's what we can do, though. Three really important things. The investigation power, the oversight power, is a very important thing. We clearly uh, lay out, present the undisputed facts for the American people to evaluate for themselves. And then second, uh, for, for us, we use that as a guide to craft legislation to reform this chaos, to ensure that it's never allowed to happen again. And then finally, and really importantly, we have the power of the purse, of course, and, and we will have to use that. Uh, very probably to ensure that federal agencies are never again allowed to abuse and and use the precious treasure of taxpayers against those taxpayers themselves. And so some of these agencies may have to have some of their funding adjusted. I'll say that diplomatically uh, <laughs> as as a way of of coercing this this behavior. Clearly, they're trampling on the Constitution. Clearly, they're violating fundamental freedoms. There may be civil actions that come out of this against some of these officials. But but our job is going to be very deliberate, very, very, uh, very constant. And we're having these hearings to present this evidence in a, in, a, in a steady and methodical way, ultimately to lead to real solutions. We have to have accountability and we've got to have reforms. And we're very, very serious about the task before us. And so what about then your counterparts in the Senate? Because obviously any legislation that would uh, be forthcoming from the Republican majority in the House would then have to go through uh, the Senate as well. And so is this an exercise more in the final reports and providing um, some legislative solutions? Or do you expect and and hope as you're talking with uh, some of your counterparts in the Senate that these are realistically uh, possible goals to achieve with the current composition there? We obviously have some very strong conservative leaders in the Senate and our colleagues and allies there that want to assist. But also obvious is the fact that Chuck Schumer is in charge over there. So he will try to stop this like a stone wall. But this is one other major factor leading into a consequential, potentially cataclysmic election in 2024. We have to uh, we have to put people in each of the in charge of each of the branches of government, right? The the White House again. We need conservative leadership there. We need it in the in the House and the Senate. Uh, we need majorities in both so that we can restore uh, order to all this. And so I, I think I think the people, as they see these facts laid out, they see these irrefutable objective truths that we're presenting. I think that will inform what they do at the ballot box. I certainly hope that's true because that ultimately. To, to be able to bring about true legislative reform and get it signed into law, you have to restore common sense and, and put people in these positions who, who understand the need for that. Absolutely. And and it's my hope and prayer that uh, that people and, and voters across the country won't be so focused on the presidential election in a presidential year that we forget about everything down ticket or we don't uh, think that that's just as important because, of course, it is because majorities do matter. And in the last few minutes I have with you, Representative Mike Johnson, um, speaking of majorities, there's there's a lot of debate among conservatives to say, OK, well, you know, we have the majority, but is it really a good conservative? 
majority or is this really kind of the Republican in name only? And a lot of people are concerned about um, some of your fellow Republicans. And you remind me often that um, Congress is a team sport and you are one of uh, the best leaders in in terms of uh, bringing together the team. Um, But what is your thought about the current majority and, of course, um, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who I've been very impressed with, honestly, far more than I originally anticipated. Um, but but maybe give us a little bit of insight into your colleagues uh, in Congress. You know, Kevin's done a good job so far uh, quarterbacking a, uh, a, a rowdy and, and often unruly team. <laughs> he has some um, very different uh, convictions along the conservative spectrum in our broad conference uh, with our with our bare uh, majority. We only have a four vote, uh, you know, margin, as you know. So um, it's a lot to uh, say grace over and a lot to, to keep together. I, I think a lot of this is based on relationship, as in any team, you've got to have members from different ends and in, in different districts uh, who come from very different demographics, et cetera, back home to sit down and talk it out. And I'm, I want to. This is a word of encouragement, Jen. A lot of that is happening, even as we speak. I mean, literally this morning, we've got uh, Republican members in in, in these, uh, you know, little many, many conferences uh, who are sitting down and talking through uh, their differences, for example, on uh, comprehensive immigration reform. And so all these, you know, pressing issues that are facing us, we've got to get our team together. And I'm hopeful that we will be able to. We've got big things on our plates uh, for the remainder of this Congress, uh, you know, big, big things ahead. And so it, it's there's going to be trust that's going to have to be uh, uh, you know, built and and uh, that will be, I think, the guide to get us through all this. So um, it, maybe it's a prayer request for all of your faithful listeners. <laughs> they know how difficult this is. The challenges are great, but we've got to approach it in good conscience, and we've got to follow the Constitution. And I think everybody here is committed uh, to, to doing it. We just got to um, we got to find those points of agreement and get it done. Reagan used to remind us, "I'd rather get 80 percent of what I want than go over the cliff with the flag waving." Right. So we got to be realist sometimes here too. Absolutely. And and that is a prayer request, and we will certainly be praying for you and for all of your colleagues uh, on both sides of the aisle. And the Bible, of course, calls us to pray for those who are in authority over us, and we certainly uh, will each and every day. And always appreciate you stopping by Representative Mike Johnson. And um, for those uh, who are listening as well, follow Representative Johnson on Twitter, uh, and you can sign up for all of his press releases and so forth at Rep. Mike Johnson. And I continue to, to pray for For uh, those who are in authority, there is always so much going on in our world and here in America, and we have to remain sober-minded so that we can look at our culture and we can understand how we can best uh, be good citizens and influence our culture and ultimately our fellow Americans and all of our friends across the world with the truth of the gospel of Christ. So we will be here each and every morning here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. If you missed any of this, you can go to AFR.net, listen to the podcast, write in Jenna at AFR.net. Love to hear from you, and we will see you tomorrow morning. Make it a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.